Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel, Marketing Manager for Amos Media and Editor of the CoinWorld Podcast. I wanted to let you know about a special offer we have right now. As a part of CoinWorld's 60th anniversary celebration, we are offering a free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's Digital Edition. If you don't subscribe to CoinWorld or you subscribe to the print edition, now is your chance to check out what the Digital Edition has to offer absolutely free. Our Digital Edition comes straight to your inbox, so you don't even have to leave the house to head to your mailbox. To start your free 30-day trial, head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial. I'll also put a link in the show notes. Hurry though, this offer expires May 31st, 2020. Again, head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial to start your free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's digital edition. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Corn World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We have a great episode for you today. We were lucky enough to speak to Saul Teichman, who was central to the most recent edition of the Judd Book, which is the standard catalog of U.S. pattern coinage published by Whitman. We also are discussing the closure of two U.S. mint branches and a couple of world mints in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we have our usual bevy of numismatic features and content. Absolutely. And this is the moment where we gently ask you to subscribe to the CoinWorld podcast. It is free. We love to have people subscribe. And speaking of free numismatic content from Amos Media, right now you can get a 30-day free trial of the CoinWorld Digital Edition. All you have to do is sign up anytime between now and May 31st, 2020. Go to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial. That's coinworld.com slash 30-day trial. You will be able to see the digital edition every weekend when it's published. It's a great thing. It's free. We're doing that just a limited time. That sort of uh, ties in with our anniversary, 60th anniversary as a publication. But also, you're stuck at home. You might as well enjoy your hobby, whether that's through the CoinWorld podcast or through the CoinWorld digital edition. So I was going to say, I mean, what are they going to do? Catch up on the podcast if you haven't listened to all the episodes. I mean, that's that's something for you to do right touché, there. Touche, touche. So there's a lot of uncertainty going on and there's a lot of businesses and, and a lot of life in general is slowed down because of the pandemic. Uh, let's talk about how from a U.S. focus, things have been affected and then we can expand that into the world side. Right. So we've spoken in previous episodes, taking excerpts and commenting on the reporting of Jeff, some of Jeff's reporting, and our colleague uh, Paul Jilks, who have talked about the cancellation of a number of coin shows and the pressure that's being put on the hobby by COVID-19. It's affecting all of us, but it's had an impact uh, on the hobby, particularly you know social events and trade shows associated with the hobby. Well, there have been sort of other developments that relate to, to numismatics and to coinage. The U.S. Mint has shut down two facilities in response to the coronavirus. Coinage production at the West Point Mint facility in New York was interrupted in uh, March 28th because an employee tested positive for COVID-19. So that interruption didn't last very long. The Mint branch was reopened on March 31st, but still, it's a three-day it's a three-day pause, a three-day interruption, and in for the sake of public health. But two weeks prior to the short-term closure of the West Point Mint, the San Francisco Mint was indefinitely shut down. In response to the pandemic, the Treasury Department doesn't want people going to work. And so the Mint has not explained when they're going to reopen the San Francisco facility. But you know, certainly that's going to interrupt the production of proof coins and all the other products that the U.S. Mint produces at the San Francisco facility. And I mean, even coin releases have been postponed. The Basketball Hall of Fame commemorative coins that were supposed to be launched a couple on April 4th. 9th. I think it was. Well, no, no, but it's been bumped off to the 9th. Yeah, yeah, they were supposed to be uh, the April 4th, then they were bumped off to the April 9th. Yeah, 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 that's, that's, is that not what I said? I believe on April 8th, though, the U.S. Mint announced that no numismatic sales would commence or continue because of this. And, you know, bullion's still going on. They're still making circulating coins. But I had a reader call me today uh, as we're recording this to try to get some clarity on when things would go on to sale again. And and really, the, the short answer is we don't know. 
Right. So, I mean, so it, it's disrupting the supply chain of outgoing U.S. Mint products. I mean, people who were excited to buy the Basketball Hall of Fame commemorative coins or any of the other products whose release or sale is being delayed as a result of the pandemic, it's impacting um, you know coin sales and it's impacting uh, U.S. Mint product releases. So not only is this affecting dealers who specialize in historical material, it's also impacting collectors and other people who are interested in current sort of contemporary mint products as well. So, yeah. but this is also having a worldwide effect, Jeff, on mints yes. around the world, yeah. right? And 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 I would say real quick as we wrap up talking about the U.S. effect, you know, you think about if those basketball coins had uh, been released when they were supposed to. To, they would be arriving at dealer and collector facilities now. Those would be submitted to grading services for early release labels and all those special things. Of course, PCGS is closed, Annex is closed, NGC remains open. So there's some, depending on how somebody wanted to handle that, they may or may not have been able to, to do that because of the situation. PCGS had worked with the Basketball Hall of Fame for special labels and even world coins that were basketball themed could get the label and so on and so forth. So it really has been quite a mess. Now, from the world standpoint, you know, I, I look immediately north to Canada, north of the U.S., uh, because they shut down Ottawa for two weeks. Uh, what did that do? Well, that was um, basically collector coins. They do bullion, but they've they've maintained production of bullion at a limited capacity. Now that two week period has elapsed. The min is back open. Uh, as of uh, what was that? April sixth, it opened up again. They are spreading out, which is something interesting. Japan, uh, they've actually gone to shift work, which they've never or hadn't been doing. In recent times, I can't speak to historically, but in recent times, they weren't doing shift work, but they've gone to shift work to allow the proper social distancing. As, you know, So there's more space. People can take up more space. And to accommodate production, they're just doing it in shifts. You see the Royal Mint actually uh, fascinating. They have shifted some part of production to making medical visors that are then given to the National Health Service. They've not been open about what kind of production, you know, how that's affected production. Like, is it 10%, 50%? What, we, we don't know, but they're doing like 5,000 medical visors a day. Uh, and those that's been going on since late March. Uh, they finally, a couple days ago, acknowledged that to CoinWorld. As I said, Japan's shift work, PopJoy Mint in the UK, they've shut down their operations for customer service and all that. So, you know, you can order stuff. You're just not going to have the order filled for a while. So there, there's a lot. This is frontline are the doctors and the, you know, all the healthcare officials and all that. But the, the tentacles of this, the ripples of this, as everyone knows, everyone's aware, they affect every area of the community, libraries being closed, uh, you know, just all sorts of things. So that's how things have, you know, have affected numismatics. Right. In the case of Japan, I'm curious, how were they scheduling their workers, if not by shift? What was the previous sort of employment model or, well, or the previous sort of working production, model? Well, like, my understanding of their production was just everybody was all in there during the day and that was it. So, oh, okay. you know, I've never been to their mint. That possibility was out there this year before the now canceled Tokyo International Coin Convention early May, about a, a little less than a month from now as you're listening to this, but that trip, I never pursued the trip because of seeing all this stuff unfold. You know, I was supposed to go to the Numismata Munich in March. I was going to London for a personal trip at the end of March. Once those were canceled, I knew that there was, you know, I just knew there's no way Tokyo's going to happen. As you can see, you know, that show's been canceled. The Valkenberg Paper Money show's been canceled. There's, there's all these things. So I've never been to the Mint in Japan. I could have gone this year if I ended up going to the to show, which now has been canceled. Uh, my understanding, all in, everybody in the pool at once. And, you know, you're just working in proximity, very close to the others. The idea was, hey, let's spread them out. We can't get as much work done in a given time frame, but we'll just move to shift work. So that's how things have gone there. As you said, the disruptions from COVID-19 are, are widespread. And 
And, you know, it's also, I imagine that the sort of slowdown in production or in the case of uh, the San Francisco Mint and very briefly the West Point Mint in the United States, imagine the cessation of production is not only impacting other workers, though I would hope that they would be, you know, furloughed in lieu of laid off or anything like that. It's probably going to result in pretty, pretty low or in some cases almost non-existent mint sales for, for the year. And I imagine that for collectors clamoring for 2020 material of, of all different kinds, I imagine that that, you know, might limit availability to some extent, in addition to the impact that it's having on dealers and other people who make their money, who in some cases make a lot of their money going to these these big shows. So it's obviously a pretty severe economic disruption across different sectors of the hobby yeah. and industry. So Yeah, I'm not so pessimistic, I guess, is, is one way to describe that. Uh, I think, you know, this is this is going to pass. It's going to, you know, we got to uh, hunker down uh, another couple months, maybe. My hope is, you know, summer seminar has been canceled. That's in June. Uh, the ANA, the American Numismatic Association, does that. But there's a lot of events that are in June that have been canceled now. And my hope is, could be wrong. My hope, though, is that we get to late May, early June, and the worst of this has passed. There's enough supplies and support to deal with whatever results once things are, you know, loosened up. I am cautiously optimistic that we will have a World's Fair of Money in Pittsburgh in August. Some yeah, that would be pro- great. Some prognosticators are not so I'm not even certain of that, but they're very skeptical that that will happen. We certainly hope it will. Uh, I know a lot of dealers hope so. Certainly collectors Pittsburgh is a good coin town. There's a lot of a lot of collectors can get there if they're not there already. You're a less than a day's drive where you are in Boston. Same for me in West Central Ohio. If the World's Fair of Money is still on, I am absolutely going to go. Not only because the ANA show is a a massive and very enjoyable show with lots of good you know, educational programming and events that are, are great for, for meeting collectors and, and learning more about the hobby and the industry. Also, I just love Pittsburgh. It's one of my favorite places I've ever visited. And I have been, and since I, since I first visited back in 2019, I have been very keen to return. So I, I am hoping that, that the ANA uh, show is still on, though I know that uh, the, with all the disruptions that have been occurring, you know, it may, for understandable concerns for public health, will be shuttered. But anyway, speaking of the coin community and coin collectors, I think, Jeff, we had a question from a Coin World reader that was sent to you by our podcast editor, Brian Hertel, that we were going to talk yes. about, right? Yes. Yeah, so uh, somebody who is a Coinworld fan on Facebook supplied the question. We don't know if they listen to the podcast. We sure hope so. But uh, regardless, we're going to provide the answer for you now and uh, maybe think about this stuff in the future. Uh, the question comes down to the root of, you know, they are interested in tokens and metals, exonumia, and are wanting to know more about, you know, gosh, it's such a big field. What are some books that I can look at to learn more? And that's a very brief and basic. That's a very brief. It's, a, it's an understandable question well, from someone yeah. who wants to dive in, and, yes. but who might not. And, and you know, there, there are a lot of volumes available. People, you know, if, if you go on the internet, you don't always know if the information you're yes. looking at is good. A, a good guidebook. So that may be an oversimplified way of framing the question, but that was the gist of the question. So what are some books that somebody who wants to dive in, as Chris notes, you know, there's there's any number of ways to start. Two came to mind for me as the starting point, certainly not the finish line. 1992, it's a, and it, and the book very much looks like a, a book from 1992. You think, if you think about graphically and otherwise, Steve Alpert, Stephen Alpert wrote Tokens and Metals, A Guide to the Identification and Values of United States Exonumia. Now, this book graphically is not a marvel. It is not, you know, we're, we're used to everything being in full color and modern page design and some of these other things. This is not that, but I will say what it is is a must-have. I have it on my bookshelf in my numismatic library. It is eminently affordable. You can get it on Amazon for like 10 bucks or less. I know several dealers who are selling it. It is still out there, even though it's out of print. It is just an essential reference that gives you the basics, the overview of all the varied areas of tokens and metals uh, from a U.S. standpoint, the exonumia, you know, car wash tokens to 
transportation tokens to, you know, you name it, it's in there. And is it covered in depth? No, of course not. You know, that's, but that's not what its purpose is. Its purpose is to be a a brief guide. It's, it is an appetizer, just like, you know, CoinWorld tries to provide appetizers with little nuggets of information, you know, exploring (laughs) a little area. It's an appetizer. Then once you get that and dive deeper in, you can figure out whether to specialize in a certain area and buy those specialized items. The other book that is a great starting point that is more recent, but still on this topic, uh, was published by Whitman in 2008. So one is 1992, one is 2008. This is a guidebook of the United States tokens and metals. This is part of the official Red Book series by Catherine Yeager Again, it's you know fifteen twenty dollar book, brand new. Sure, it might it might be less uh, used if you can find it. It is uh, lots of great color photos, lots of great succinct, more recent data as far as pricing. It's you know I still wouldn't look at any two thousand and eight book as, as something meaningful from a price standpoint. But it is important to give you relative prices, right? So if, if you see something that's $100 in the book and something that's $10 in the book, most of the time, I would say 99% of the time, that disparity continues today. There are obviously exceptions. There's always exceptions to the rule. When you're talking about tokens and metals particularly, has there been a hoard released? Has there been a major collection of this type that sold at auction and items that had not been on the market for a long time suddenly appeared, have taste in collecting changed a little bit. Any of those factors are always going to matter, but that book is a wonderful guide. It's a fun read, a modern full color. It's Those are the two books I would say should be the pillar, the starting point to your tokens and metals education. I really do sympathize with the reader here because even strictly in an American context, there have been so many different tokens, medals, and other pieces of exonumia issued by so many different issuers, so many different organizations, so many different motifs that it truly is a dizzying you know, array of content. And every once in a while at a coin show or on, um, on auction websites, on uh, Facebook groups where you know, people go to sell coins and tokens and medals and all kinds of numismatic material – Every once in a while, and I imagine Jeff, you you might still have, with you know, even though you have many more years of experience than I do, you know, I imagine that every once in a while you'll see a, a, some new token or some new subset of of tokens or token issues that you didn't even necessarily know existed, and so and you know, someone who might have found a really a, a token that really ignited an interest for whatever reason, whether it's from an organization to which someone has a personal connection whether they know a little bit about the history of the location that the token was issued in or might refer to. There are any number of reasons to be interested in tokens. And I can sympathize as someone who is a relatively newcomer to the world of tokens as well. I can absolutely sympathize with someone who just wants you know, some, some basic reference material to acquaint themselves with the terrain before they really dive in and, as you mentioned, Jeff, start to, start to specialize. So that's a good question, and we hope that uh, listeners appreciate the really good book recommendations that Jeff just gave because, you know, in a lot of cases, numismatic books, some volumes um, are very, very expensive, though Jeff did mention uh, a very affordable and accessible a copy of a book that might be helpful for people interested in token collecting. In a lot of cases, people might not necessarily want to go out and spend a lot of money on a book without knowing if it's if it's uh, the most recent edition, if it's if it's uh, covers the material that they're interested in. So, so we the, hope that that was that was helpful to listeners yeah. Yeah. who might the, have the veracity of the information they're in. I, I mean, I can point to several titles in the CoinWorld library that. I know that when I pick up that book that I need to be a little more cautious about using the information. That's not to say that the the book is not does not serve a purpose and provide some insight and some value. It's a starting point, but uh, but absolutely when you're talking about spending good money, you want to know that you're going to get something that delivers and and fills the bill. So, uh, maybe we should uh, maybe we should do this more often. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I, I totally agree. The old adage that I'm sure we've uh, mentioned on the podcast a number of times is buy the book, not the coin. The idea is to research a series or a 
subset of material that you're interested in before taking the plunge and actually buying examples of it. That way you can be able to verify counterfeits, be able to recognize cleaning, be able to recognize, you know, uh, striking errors and things like that. But even more than that, I think just sharing the books that both both books that Jeff and I find useful numismatically and every once in a while, I mean, I'd get a kick out of just talking about the books that Jeff and I are reading inside or outside of the numismatic industry. I mean, I, I tend to read a lot of historical nonfiction um, in sort of my pleasure reading uh, tends to be historical in nature. And, you know, just being able to chat about about what books in, in the industry we find useful and what books we find engaging outside of the industry as well. But speaking of our interest in history, Jeff, I think you've dug up uh, a little nugget of numismatic history that uh, you're going to share. Absolutely. We always like to go back to the archives. And this week, a star is born. I say that because it was on April 14, 1910, that the Bureau of Engraving and Printing Director suggested to the U.S. Treasurer, then uh, Lee McClung was the treasurer, the suggestion was that the Bureau be authorized to prepare special character notes distinguished from regularly numbered notes. So that's a star note. We've mentioned those before on the podcast. Star notes, It's they're, they're fun little areas of uh, just a slice of, of the paper money hobby that the average... I think just the average person on the street has no idea. I have taken many years, have a star note in my wallet. And uh, if I am ever in a position to bore somebody to death, I mean, to, to expand their knowledge of the <laughs> hobby, I, that might be a, a place where I start and I go, Hey, look, look, what's, what's different about this note than the notes that you're used to seeing. And they stare at it and go, I don't know. You say, look at that, that star there. That's not on all the notes. Well, what does that mean? You know, collectors know many of them that the star is there because that represents a note that was printed and prepared to replace a note that was damaged during the production process. And by their very nature, there are far fewer star notes in a given series than regular. Cause I mean, I'm sorry if, if you're making more star notes than good notes in the regular production then, process, then you, you're you got something process. wrong with the, the process. So, <laughs> so, you know, star notes are invariably rare. And, you know, there's 13 Federal Reserve districts. You can collect star notes from all of those districts. But anyways, a star is born basically on a day this week, April 14th, 1910. And we're not talking about much paper money any which way in this episode, but I thought that was cool enough to to delve into and to talk about. I'm also just picturing you going up to people on the street like some kind of a missionary and being like, excuse me, sir, do you have a moment to talk about my star notes? Yes, um, yes. Do you have a collection and do you know what it's not? <laughs> let me <laughs> yeah. let me talk about your 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 inherent value. No. I, I, I'm trying to think of some some proselytizing, you know. Actually, you know what would be really good is in the Christian tradition in which I grew up, uh, there's a, a thing called a tract, and that's uh, something that you leave somewhere and hope somebody finds it and, and it shares the gospel message. And oftentimes, tract makers will make tracts that have a paper money look to them so that somebody picks it up thinking it's money and oh gosh, there you go. You know, it's, it's, it's money. Somebody dropped this money and no, actually you got fooled. It was, uh, with a religious message. So, so I, sh I should get well, in a way, that's what, tracks. <laughs> in a way, that's almost what the great American coin hunt sought to do, right? By seeding relatively low value collectible material into circulation. It's, it's almost like a numismatic version of that, right? Someone finds a worn Buffalo nickel and change and they might, you know, they might go to try to learn more about it and fall into, you know, fall into our psychosis. I mean, I mean, hobby. Yes. Um, wonderful hobby. And that's, that's uh, good timing because the Great American coin hunt version two is coming to us later in April. I believe I want to say uh, it's the week of like April 27th or 20th to 25, I think. Uh, in any event, uh, this is yeah, the we'll, second. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it as we uh, as we approach when we get closer. When we get closer. yeah, as we approach the date of its of its start. There was a different sort of coin hunt on though this week in Coin World history. We're looking at uh, an old Coin World issue from 2009, uh, and we picked that year because our guest uh, Saul Teichman. 
was a major contributor to the most recent edition of the Judd book, which is sort of, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, the standard catalog of U.S. pattern coinage. And the most recent edition of the book, it's been published, I believe it's on its 10th edition. Its first edition was published in 1953, but Coin World didn't exist in 1953. We're celebrating our 60th anniversary this year. In recognition of Saul Teichman's contribution, we decided to use 2009, the year of the most recent edition. Uh, we decided to use that as our as the year of Coin World that we would analyze uh, for this week in Coin World. And the big headline, as Jeff is going to talk about in a second, was um, the Lincoln Bicentennial commemorative scent designs. The big headline for that issue of Coin World talks about the coin launch that ended up being held May 14th in Indiana, the uh, second state of record, if you will, for President Lincoln. For those of us who were around then, we certainly remember how important 2009 was to the hobby from a scent standpoint. Four different designs that year entering circulation. You had the collector sets with uh, original, the scents were struck from the original alloy of the scent. Basically, the, the centennial scents were struck just like the, the 1909 scents, that same alloy. So there, there were a lot of uh, cool things that happened that year. And this was what was going on. This is what the hobby was talking about at this time. That was the um, close, if you will. That was the last year or the only year. The state quarter program ended in 2008, but legislatively, Congress said, no, we're going to honor the um, territories now. And so that was when Puerto Rico was uh, honored with its circulating quarter. And that was the big news on the front pages of Coin World. What were, what were hobbyists talking about, Chris? As usual, hobbyists were disagreeing on the letters to the editor page no. of Coin World. Hobbyists yeah, right? disagreeing? It's... That never happens. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. We, we constantly exist in perfect harmony. So hobbyists were disagreeing, uh, and the subject of the disagreement was uh, the pricing of the commemorative scents. You know, the, the Mint releases all these different products, and they released uncirculated and proof strikings of these new scents. And of course... Some people were fine with the mint's pricing or the mint's price point and pricing strategy. Others were not. So there are two letters whose titles, I think, sort of suggest the disagreement. One is called Ridiculously High Markup, and the other is called In Defense of New Scent Prices. So they get right down to it. The former of those two, Ridiculously High Markup, reads, quote, Okay, so let me go through the mint's pricing strategy again, <laughs> which I think is a very funny way to open up a letter. <laughs> The Mint is offering a two-roll set of the new Lincoln Scent for $8.95 plus $4.95 shipping. That's a total of $13.90 for a dollar's worth of the cents. Let's see. I can pay 13.9 cents for every cent. Or I can direct purchase a new Native American dollar for what? A dollar! Exclamation point. So I have to purchase at least 250 of the dollars, but at least there is no markup. The U.S. Mint does not even charge shipping. The mintages of these new scents will be astronomically high. There won't be a lot of room for future price advances. I wonder when the mint is going to announce that a mint error was, quote, released, unquote, in the circulation quality role set. That will cause the mint phones and website to be inundated with treasure hunters. I hope true collectors will preserve their capital and focus on supporting the honest dealers who actually have something of value to sell. From Ken Rupert of Hampstead, Maryland. So obviously he takes issue with or took issue with the the degree of uh, markup that the mint had placed on the scent rolls that were being produced and was encouraging collectors to not buy those particular products, uh, noting that there wasn't any such markup on the Native American dollars. Now, someone else, of course, felt the opposite way. The letter entitled In Defense of New Scent Prices reads, I am a full-time dealer. I'm also a collector in a small way. I really like the new scents. A friend of mine had me order him a few rolls of the scents on eBay, first at $26 a roll and later at $10 a roll. Not sure where he got those prices from. I got some from him and was able to sell them for a dollar each at local shows. This seems like a lot of money for a coin that you might be able to get in change for one cent soon. That's a fairly prescient comment. Then again, you may not be able to. But keep in mind that in 1857, when the Flying Eagle Scent came out, and in 1909, when the first Lincoln Scents came out, they were sold quickly for a dollar or more each. A dollar was way more then than it is now. Lincoln Scents are very popular, and the market for them is very strong. The new designs 
would be like wheat sends. If put into circulation, they will soon be pulled out by collectors and the public. The letter continues for quite some time, but it ends with, I predict that the second, third, and fourth designs will have lower mintages and will also be harder to obtain from banks than the first design is. Also elaborating, these coins are historic, well-designed, and they are part of what I consider to be the most popular series of U.S. coins ever minted. I'm sure that, you know, collectors of other series might dispute that claim. This was written by uh, Daniel Sheffer, Daniel's Coins and Currency in Shelby Township, Michigan. So, Again, as always, collectors were disagreeing about not only the mint's pricing strategy, but they also kind of seem to be disagreeing about the merit of the 2009 bicentennial sense as collectibles or and their potential future value. So well, I find it interesting. The first letter writer was correct in one respect, and so was uh, Mr. Sheffer, because the the first letter writer referenced that there would be some errors and things found in them. Uh, he he was suggesting a more nefarious uh, situation that the mint intentionally created them. Uh, collectors did find double dies and other things in roll hunting and all that that uh, have led to more interest in that series, if you will, because of the demand though, for that coin, I I have a set of the rolls myself in with my collection and they're still unopened, but some people were opening them up to find these things. But the first design was actually the lowest mintage until you get to the presidency design, which was the fifth one. That mintage is far and away lower. Now we're still talking, you know, 129 million coins from Philadelphia and um, 198 million from from Denver, but the mintages on the presidency design were the lowest, uh, was the lowest. The three middle ones were higher than the first one, which does contrast with what Mr. Sheffer suggests in any event. So it's interesting. We always love uh, peeling back the lens and and looking back in time to history and exploring some of these little moments that uh, make up part of our numismatic trivia. Trivia. I think I, think I owe you an back. answer to a question, Jeff. You do. You you owe me. Um, <laughs> though not as much as last week. Uh, <laughs> so oh, that's that, that's a deep cut. <laughs> um. <laughs> so so the uh, the question this this last time was we thought it was topical given the current unease in the world. Uh, what disease closed down the Philadelphia Mint every summer during its early years? We're all paying attention to the war. You know, we, we're living history right now that children, grandchildren are going to read about in history books. I hope you're taking notes. I hope you're journaling or something. Yeah, the, the documents produced by people from this pandemic will actually, I imagine, be of some interest Yes. To, to future historians. And, and there are, uh, you know, one of the ways we know about the events that unfolded in Philadelphia those summers because of those personal journals, what was plaguing the city those years? It was the yellow fever. I got a fever and the only cure is coinage. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's like Saturday night fever, but, you know, less disco. You certainly want to be staying alive in these tough times. (laughs) But uh, but anyway, so so uh, very good. You you were correct. So uh, because we are talking about pattern coins, we have a question related to patterns. This week, you'll answer it next week, and and listeners. Well, uh, I'll, I'll do my best to. I think I think you're yeah. you're giving me a pretty optimistic, well, you <laughs> optimistic know, appraisal. That other question was novice level. So is this? You got the last one. I think you'll get this one. So <laughs> I where appreciate your faith in me? Where are most U.S. pattern coins struck? You know, there's been at least eight mint facilities, nine if you count Manila, but eight on continental U.S. Where do the patterns get struck? It's a great question. And Which so- we will answer next week. In the interim, you can learn a little bit more about pattern coins by listening to our interview with Saul Teichman, which we really hope that you enjoy. Chris and I have the pleasure today to speak with Saul Teichman, who is the expert in United States pattern coins, was the uh, research associate for the 10th edition of what's known as the Judd Book, published by Whitman, uh, also co-founder of the Society of U.S. Pattern Collectors, and sort of the driving force of USPatterns.com. Thank you for being here today. Oh, surely. 
I read the introduction and, of course, have seen the book many times and, and referred to it. Patterns are an interest that, you know, it's not really something I, I can own and, and go chase. But um, I, I love this concept or this idea of the what might have been. And in the introduction, that was one way to put it, but uh, that's not the only way to think about patterns. What What is a pattern coin? What makes a pattern coin? Are they even coins? Can, can we call them coins? Well, you can. It depends what the purpose of, the, of what the mint was doing at the time was. Sometimes it's for doing experiments on different alloys, like copper, nickel, brilliant, villain, any of the, any of the oddball metals that you've seen, goloid, if, if, if people aren't you know, that are familiar with the Judd book and seeing compositions like that. First coins made of bronze. Others are, are to try to do things to make, they use what you call different planchets. You'll see, if you know patterns at all, you'll see that there are dollar patterns with holes in the middle of them. Try to make the coins a little bigger, so to make them you know a little more handsy, for lack of a better word. So, and and some of them are based on what, what they needed to do. They want they they wanted a two cent piece. You create a design with a two cent piece. You want to create a three cent piece. Create a design for it. You want a double eagle in eighteen forty nine, probably the most famous of all the coins. You create a trial piece. See if yeah. see what it looks like. Yeah. See if it works. And that's really that's really how they are. They're they're coins. What drew you into patterns and research? Uh, probably the probably the first thing I enjoyed with the patterns was I used to go to New York coin shows. I lived in the city my whole life, and in the seventies they used to have a lot of coin shows in New York. Now you don't see many, unfortunately, because of the cost. But I used to go to the New York coin shows all the time. And one of the New York collectors, his name was Julius Turoff. His collections, his collection of patterns, was sold by Bowers and Mariner in nineteen ninety four. Used to do a display of patterns at the show. He was one of the first people I've ever met that ha- that had those coins. I just I just found them interesting. He would show a copper Goldbrecht dollar, one of his two school gold dollars. And I, I just found them much neater than the regular coins. So pattern coins were used. Uh, the, the book's um, overview of sort of the history of patterns and pattern collecting in America alludes to the fact that pattern coins were actually used to help fund the Mint's own numismatic collection. Could you enlighten our listeners a little bit about how some of those pattern coins came to be and the sort of funding role that they served, you know, relatively early in the Mint's history? Well, the earliest we, we know about of pattern coins being made for collectors was actually in the 1840s when W.E. Dubois was actually selling coins to Matthew Stickney. David Stone of Heritage found papers from Stickney actually in the, and I think it was, it was the Essex Museum in, in, in Massachusetts. And those letters, you see them talking about coins, about the 1804 silver dollar. At the same time he was getting that, he was getting 18, 1838 Gobert dollar. He got an 1839 Judd 93 half dollar, and a Judd 79A, which didn't even exist until it was actually made. For, one of them was actually made for him. So that's the earliest that we know of, in fact, of a quote collector's coin being sold, being deliberately made. You can argue that some patterns aren't really patterns. I won't get into that. That discussion with, with sticking in him goes all the way into the 1850s, trading often trading Gobert dollars, you know, for other coins. He got his, I think, an 1849 gold dollar pattern that way. Very interesting. Those are the first ones that most people, when they think of the patterns, think in the 1850s. And that was when basically coins like these 12-piece type sets of copper pennies, copper nickel pennies, that are very popular. I have to give you, I can give you a listing of what they were, but it won't help people. Like a Judd 202, 3 and 4, Judd 212, 213. This won't mean anything to anybody but us. But there's, there were 12-piece sets that were deliberately made the Mint was selling the, those to collectors basically to get Washington medals. Around that time, there's a great interest in increasing the, Mint's, the Mint cabinet's collection of Mint medals, especially of George Washington. They were using these sets, essentially, to trade for coins to get these medals. Most of that started in the, in the late 1850s, around 1858, 1859. That's where the famous, also where like the famous Gobrek dollar that, with the name below the base, 1836, which is called the Judd 58, was, was created. Also, a lot of additional 1838, 1839 Gobrek dollars came about at that point. The Mint also created a bunch of, you know, you've heard of the restocks of the 1840, 1849 half cents. A lot of those also created around that time. There's a bunch of other patterns that were created around that time too, especially gold dollars and off metals and things like that from it that were dated 1852. A lot of that stuff was created for those trades. And that's basically when, when the, we'll call the pattern stuff really starts to get into, into being. Where, 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 you know, the earliest patterns like in 1792 and some of the what we'll call die trials that are known were just that. They were the true first patterns of our things. If you look in a, in a pattern book, most of the stuff after 1792 till, till you get to 1836, 
are really all dye trials of stuff made outside the mint from mint dyes that were sold to scrap. It seems that there's a way to sort of separate the different eras. You know, as you just mentioned, the 1792 pieces and, and some of the most famous U.S. coins ever are among that early batch, the uh, half deem or Disney and the Disney, but those were all legitimate outgrowths of a legitimate production process. That 1850s to 1885 period was more the collector piece by order. Is there more love or less love for the earlier stuff or the pieces that seem quote unquote more official? How do people approach that because of the, the nature of some of those later pieces of how they came to be? Prior to the 1850s, where you really have, where they start looking to make the, most of the patterns were designed to make the the large cent smaller. So you see them experiment with that. They, you have your, your first experience with a three cent piece in 1850, for example. Those are legitimate patterns. But like I said, between 1794 to 1836, any patterns you see are either you know, concoctions made outside the mint or, or just dye trials. You know, basically a strike of a set of dyes in copper just, just, just to test the dyes. Maybe they have the spacings right, have the, you know, that kind of stuff. After 1836, you have, it's the first time you really see some patterns, we'll say. You have, you have your two cent pattern. You have a gold dollar pattern, which is called the Judd 67. And then, of course, you have the Gobrek dollars. And you can argue that, and you can argue that the regular 1836 Gobrek dollar was struck for circulation. It's not a pattern. Before that, every, like I said, that's the quiet, what I call the quiet time. The first real patterns that you see after that, you have to go really to 1849. Okay, 1838 and 1839, you have a couple of half dollar patterns I mean, when they were trying to reduce the size of the weights. But beyond that, there was really nothing. You really would call a pattern until you get to like 1850, where you really start seeing things. So for the benefit of our listeners who might not be aware, when you when you use um, Judd numbers, you know, um, patterns are listed with Judd followed by a number which describes a, a specific pattern. Um, could you explain a little bit about the work of J. Hewitt Judd? And could you elaborate a little bit on some of the characters from the sort of history of these pattern coins? The first pattern books were actually created by uh, R. Colton Davis, who was, who was one of the first persons to have one of the greater pattern collections. And he did that in the 1880s. And it was distributed by, I think it was Scott Stamp and Coin in their monthly journals. Then, then it came to 1913 when Adams and Wooden created the first true pattern book that people are familiar with today. And that was, book was in 1913. It was basically a bunch of patterns that Wooden got. Wooden was the first you know, pattern collector who seemed to have good connections with the Mint personnel, basically Snowden. The story of how he got his coins is that for anyone's not there, there are two $50 gold, half, what they call half unions, that Snowden basically bought a face value from the Mint when they're looking to produce a $50 pattern in 1877. And wouldn't Hazel, John Hazeltine and, and Stephen Nagy, I think, $10,000 each for them. And apparently someone got upset about that at the Mint. I don't, I don't know if they ever made the papers, as people say, but some, somehow that got upset that, that Mint personnel, and, and to be honest, a lot of coins were made by Mint personnel. And we can, go, we can talk about that, too, if you go to like the Dr. Linderman at, at, the, <laughs> at the auction of his patterns. But the point is, those coins are the basis for a lot of, of the patterns that we see today. Basically, a deal was made, was struck between between Snowden and Wooden to return those two half unions to the Mint collection. It really ha- seems to have had behind this, all the patterns that were struck in Snowden's, during Snowden's time that he essentially paid face value for, he sold to Wooden to get to give him back that money. The Mint took the half union and put them in their collection, and of course now they're on display at the Smithsonian. And Wooden got a ton of patterns, most of them admittedly, you know, dated in the 1870s and 1880s and 1890s, but nice stuff, to put it simply. And the, and the bulk of the patterns that are out there today come from that, essentially from that, we'll call it a trade. And this documentation that, that, that was actually in the John Ford Library. And it's on my pattern website. And so if you go to those patterns, you can read up on some of that. But yeah. that, that. That's where the bulk of the patterns that we see today came from. It seems astonishing to somebody who's maybe, who's entered the hobby in, in recent eras, you know, in the last 10 years, 20 years, to think about the U.S. Mint being a factory of pieces of caprice or, you know, these these questionable or spurious issues. And yet that's such, as you note, such an important fabric to the story of patterns. Um, We've seen efforts in recent years for the government to chase the 1933 double eagle. Why has there not been similar efforts to go after some of these uh, questionable pieces from the 1850s, 60s, and, and so on, especially from Linderman's era? One thing that's interesting, when Linderman's original auction was sold, 
the, all the regular issues and from basically from like 1867 to about 1875, 1876, exists as complete sets and off metals. And the most famous of those are literally cased proof sets that were dated 1868. When Linderman's collection was sold, all those kind of things were confiscated. They were actual circulation coins being out there in different metals like that, aluminum. Or, or. So that was, that was one of the more interesting things that happened then. About 1910, when, when this stuff started, there, there were some questions about, what, what, for example, who didn't like the idea that all these patterns were out there and was, and was trying to get them confiscated. Once the mint collection happened, the thing with wooden happened, though, that pretty much stopped. The question of whether patterns were legal to own and that seemed, t- seemed to have died down. And f- since then, that's been okay. The 33 double legal is a little more interesting because th- they, were, they were produced, to me, they're more like the 1974 aluminum pennies. Yeah. They were circulation coins, and then they decided not to release them. And since no one could prove that the 1933s weren't released until like 1937, when their family apparently got a roll of them, you know, clandestinely for t- in trade or whatever the case may be, that's when that became a big deal. That's really the difference between the, the 1933s and that. They're like, a, like what I call a rejected regular issue. And the fruit one is getting an export license. They let that one go. They figured they can make some money out of it, and they did. <laughs> Thinking of patterns broadly, there's something like more than 1,800 different examples uh, classified as a, a pattern. Where would a collector want to even begin to think about starting? Obviously, getting the book um, is is a great place to start. But but how, how do you how do you jump into that when there's you know two hundred plus years of of history encapsulated in eighteen hundred pieces? Well, the first thing you do is is to, is to get a book. Whether you get a, the current Judd book or, or go to the uspatterns.com website. Basically, that website came along because there was a gap between the seventh edition of Judd and, and Whitman Publishing taking over the, the publishing of the Judd book. One of the reasons that came about was we, we people wanted something a little more up to date and, and that. So the, the pattern site was basically the work of me, Andy Lustig, who's a coin dealer and sells patterns. Uh, Dave Cassell, who specialized in what they called postage currency patterns, which were dime patterns that were made in the 1860s to be redeemed literally for postage stamps at the time. And, and Alan Merrick, who... who did a lot of research on two cent pieces. So we came together, we, we basically created a website and, and basically we put up all the, all the information that was in the, there was, there were like three or four reference books, Adams and Wood, and we discussed the Judd book came about in 1959, the first edition. Mm-hmm. Coin World created an Ormac, but I didn't really use that one. And then Don Taxi created a comprehensive catalog in 1971 that was repeated in 1976. And I basically took all that information, all those th- information and Andrew Pollock's book, he created what I call a, a big table book that has every, you know, everything in it. We basically merged all that data together and basically put an online pattern book out there. Try to get images of every of every item that we could, you know, whether it was in a museum or otherwise. You know, and obviously the auction houses were helpful, whether it's Stacks or Bowers and Moraner at the time, or you know, all the Goldbergs or Heritage. All the, all those people helped. You know, they they gave us permission to do that. We went to all the museums to get images of the coins we had to get but and if you look on the website almost there's usually an image of almost every known pattern on there at least you know as far as you know the design goes we're not as concerned when you talk about 1800 patterns around 1800 designs a lot of the patterns exist in multiple metals with multiple edges so there's actually few it's actually fewer than you think there's several hundred but it's actually less than a lot of people realize yeah and some patterns aren't really patterns they're what we call regular die trial pieces they're st- those are sets of of, of the regular issue coins and like a silver coin in copper, like a like a regular diamond copper or a regular diamond aluminum. So that's one area that somebody can collect. If they're already collecting the standard coinage that exists, they might expand their collection and get in what might be called an off-metal piece. The other, I think, popular area and um, is you know a transitional piece, something like the 1856 Flying Eagle. Uh, scent being that design before that's one area to start what are some thoughts of wrapping your head around those those kind of pillars of of the collecting field you want to not collect patterns but want to expand your let's say you have, you have a, a v nickel set for example it goes from 1883 to, 19, to 1912 we'll leave the 13 out of there for now because that's almost impossible to afford <laughs> but you, but, the, but the original patterns for that really started in 1882 you can, it's, it's nice to include a couple of those or the, or, an 18, or some ones in 1883 that were rejected. It's nice to add something like that to your collection. A lot, yeah, that, that's a very popular way to collect. If you have more money, you can try to get like the 1916 Walking Liberty half patterns for your thing. But that, those are nice grades of those, so for $100,000 a piece. So that's a little tougher. You know, you, ha- you have to find your, your thing. 
a lot of people that collect patterns that collect specific denominations. Wayne Wilcox, who's no longer with us, he collected pattern nickels, especially, for example. There's some people, like like I said, Dave Casella worked with um, us on, a ridge, on, on setting up the pattern website. He collected postage currency dimes, which only exist for 1863, 1868, 1869. So he collected a very specialized area of collecting. There are people that do that. that you know, there are people that collect large... They're, they're, Rick Kay is a collector who, who likes the uh, 1854 to 1855 flying eagle patterns and collects and researches those, especially for their composition. You find specialties that people collect. There's another way too. You can collect what I call a, a denominational t- pattern set. Get yourself a pattern penny, a pattern two cent piece, a pattern three cent piece, a pattern five cent piece, a pattern half dime, a pattern dime, a pattern 20 cent. Try to collect one of each, of each denomination. You make a little nice little set. Then there are the super specialties like Dr. Wilkerson who collected gold patterns. Not everyone can do that. To collect every pattern is, you know, is almost impossible because not all of them exist in, in, in circulation. Probably the, the, the greatest collection of all time is King Farouk of, of Egypt. He probably had the greatest collection of, you know, of patterns overall. Didn't matter what metal he had and everything. Yeah, and he ruined King- some of the coins, but that's a, you know, a couple <laughs> especially. But t- today, Bob Simpson, you know, who's a very famous collector, probably has the, has the largest, the most complete collection. Of patterns, saying his, and the ones he likes, like Amazonian patterns, which are from 1872, he has multiple multiples of. He likes those especially. There are ways to collect. Now you focus down. Like I said, there are transitional patterns. You can collect a specific engraver. There, there are ways to to collect subsets, you know, and, and make it reasonable. The Judd book describes post 1896 patterns as almost uncollectible. What happened in 1896 that made later patterns so rare? And, you know, it seems like most of the dates we've been hearing are from, you know, the the mid to later stages of the 19th century. Are there a lot of 20th or 21st century patterns that people could collect or, or was 1896 a sort of rough end date? And why was that date? Basically, it ended in 1885 with the two aluminum sets that were created. You can argue it's even earlier than that. 1883 was probably the last time you see that because really the 1884 and 1885 are die trials. You don't see another pattern until the 1896 penny and nickel patterns came out with the base of a shield and a wreath in the back. And after that, you don't see the patterns again really until the St. Gordon's stuff from 1907. The extra high relief, and there's some lead trials of that. But beyond that, for some reason, there was less activity. At the mid, there wasn't a lot of design change either. So there, there wasn't much. I don't know if there was any reason for a pattern. You know, usually if there's a pattern, there's, there's a reason for it. They redesigned the nickel in 1883. In the Lincoln Scent, for example, there's, there's only a, a splash, which is a uniface designed hours. I've never seen anything other than that existing for the, for the Lincoln Penny. Well, when Fraser made this, is 1913, like Buffalo Pads, those were more what they call electrotypes. They were basically shells made of, of a soft metal. So I don't, I don't even know if those were even, are even in products half of that stuff or if they really made, were made. No, by him or for him. So until you get to after 1916, you have you have the patterns for the Mercury dime, the Standing Liberty quarter, which are which are very rare, and then and of course there are several for the half dollar. But right between that issues, very there was very little done. All the barber patterns that were dated 1891, all those are in the Smithsonian. You, you can't see none of those got to us. So for some reason that was just a, a dead time. There were some law changes to try to make things different. I think in 1885 or around there, I forget the dates. I'd have to I'd have looked it up, but where they did make it harder. There were some people who complained about the, the mint. The, the problem was is that Snowden kept it all. Whatever patterns he, he had, like I said, Wooden got a lot of those from Snowden. He, he kept the Amazonian gold set. He kept a lot of the, those patterns. He kept was a lot, most of the patterns today that exist from, from like I said, from the 18, from like circa 1871 to that time, that Wooden got all came from Snowden. Green thought they were from Idler, but they're, yeah, mostly, but they're not. They came, most of them came from Snowden at that point. You mentioned the Amazonian patterns a couple times. This was a, a set, eighteen seventy two dated, um, by, by William Barber. He created a quarter, a half, and a dollar, and they exist in silver, copper, and aluminum. And he also created what one of the more prized collections is, is a unique denominational set in gold. There's one set in gold, a little over a dozen in copper, and th- and probably three in aluminum. Complete sets. I don't, I can't find a third double eagle, but there's three of there's three of all the others. But that all pretty much all came to wooden, you know, through that through the return of those two half unions. Yeah. The only coin that I know of that I, in, in aluminum, for example, that that, exi- that existed at an early time was to get was a three dollar Garrett had, not in, you know, the John Hopkins University collection. And I don't know if John Work Garrett got that later or or whatever. But those are very rare. You might only see a copper set back in the 1880s or eighteen nineties. Those are virtually non existent. 
1877 half dollars are very popular they were virtually non-existent until after after that there's only th- two or three collections that had 1877 halves the Garrett collection had most of most of them and then another set went to went to to dowdy and it was sold in 1891 and byron reed bought those so they were in the during west you know during museum and then when woodside had a set beyond that you 1877 ha- patterns were virtually unheard of until, until the 1900s brand had four copper ones Here's another one that, you know, when Wooden started, you know, Brand had a, had a ton of patterns. His collections, the way he collected was strange compared to other people. And Colonel Green just collected everything. <laughs> yeah, he did. Uh, so you, you mentioned a lot of names that some collectors certainly uh, who have been on the beginning end might not be familiar with. Virgil Brand, I think you said, who's, of course, the, the beer baron out of Chicago. Um, John Work Garrett, the Baltimore uh part of the the Garrett family. I think one of the things that sort of the best way to encapsulate um, or describe pattern coins is oftentimes they're beautiful. uh, They're rare and they're expensive. You know, you have the the coiled hair, the Stellas, the $4 Stellas are are some of the the most famous patterns. All of those are uh, incredibly uh, rare and expensive. Is there an area that somebody who uh, can get started that do, they don't need to have enough money to to buy a you know to buy a, a, a midsize SUV to buy some of these coins? Yeah, I, I would like I said I would recommend people buy the buy the patterns that are there are ones that have a thousand struck. You can get you can get a gold white dollar you know in a, in a sixty three rate for a couple of grand. So you can get certain more, what we call more common you know like I said nickel patterns from from the eighteen sixties. Also in that range, and, and and you get you know several like cent patterns from the eighteen from eighteen fifty. Basically, there are very few like really rare you know outside until you get to aluminum die trials that are for, for one cent piece that are expensive. You think those are all affordable for the most part. It's not like you can get one for a few hundred dollars you know unless it's circulated. Circulated patterns are another way to collect. By the way, they're they're very hard to you know because some of them believe it or not did circulate. That some were spent not not a lot of them, but yeah, generally speaking, because of their rarity. They tend to be expensive, and, and some, actually, some of the more expensive ones are the ones that are in the Red Book, like like the Stella. What business does a four dollar gold piece have being in, in the Red Book when you think about it? The Midstructor, the, the patterns, they don't belong in there really. If you think about it, they, they, I know they include the seventeen ninety two patterns as quote the first patterns. And the half time's not a pattern. That should actually be collected with the regular ones. That's not even that's not a pattern. The other the other ones you can argue are. I think the the fact that it's included in the red book speaks to the power of the red book, though that uh, because it's in there, then people know about it and they want to collect it, and that pushes right. that push that creates a demand that then right. pushes. They put patterns in the when Whitman took over the, later in the two thousands. You started seeing a pattern section in the back because I did one of them for them. Yeah, back back in the two thousand in the early two thousands, where we put some patterns and, and and did that. But before that, you really outside of the seventies ninety twos, and still you really didn't have too many patterns in there. Okay. Like I said, the eighteen thirty six and thirty nine Goldberg dollars are really circulation coins. The thirty eight's a pattern, but so Q. David Bowers in the preface to the tenth edition of the United States Pattern Coins, the Judd book published by Whitman, he says that a knowledge of patterns is essential to the understanding of the entire panorama of American coinage. They are the foundation upon which the regular series have been built. Uh, As somebody with such a deep and unique knowledge on the pattern coins, what design or designs stand out to you as something that, uh, gosh, you would have loved to have seen on a uh, a series of coins, you know, in, instead of say the, the Barber dime or the Barber, you know, it, what would you have loved to have seen actually be circulated and represent America's best ideals and, and the panorama of American history? To me, the nicest designs for me, I like the shield earring patterns from 1882. I thought those have a nice look to them. I mean, I always like the defiance of the Eagle. I obviously like the schoolgirl dollar, which is a very pretty coin. Uh, you know the extra high relief, more or less. You have that in 1907 with the regular relief ones. Those are those are pretty coins, but but not practical for for true coinage. Sure. You know, those those are probably the nicest designs. A lot of people do like the Amazonians. I, I happen to own one of the the quarters in silver, but I don't consider that design as nice as the shield earring. I like that one better. Schoolgirl is definitely a popular one, and it, it reminds me that there's such a unique vocabulary regarding some of the pattern designs, you know, whether that's the ugly duckling, the Amazonian, the schoolgirl. The Amazonian, the schoolgirl, and the wash lady designs, th- those descriptions actually came from in the 1890s. That's when that you first started seeing that. It came from David Prosky. 
from New, from New York Coin and Stamp. He was the oh, one who okay. did that. Okay, okay, yeah. Was, and that's that was later confirmed. And if if you some numismatists, you know the the A and A house organ from in the early like 1900s, like circa 1908, to somewhere now. That's all. It's also mentioned there. I know Edgar Adams mentions the school, I think, in 1911, yeah, in October or something that, that it came. But they, 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 those did come from David Prosky. He was the one who gave them their names. Okay, I, I think my favorites the uh, the French Liberty. I think by Barber, the French coinage is so uh, generally so beautiful. Anyway, it has that has a uh, a nice international flavor to it that is just is different. That you know something we've never seen on, okay. on circulation. Well, coins like the Bigfoot Ten are, you know, those are expensive coins. <laughs> you like to select like international coins, but that's one of the reasons for, for patterns. You know, why were some of these made? Some, like I said, for new denominations. You know, people think we've only had the, you know, basically the the, the penny, the nickel, the dime, the quarter, and the half dollar, and the silver dollar. And people realize we've ended more denominations than we have today. We've, we've produced over. When you think about, it, we've probably produced over twenty. If you want to go, you know, we've had half cents, large cents. Yeah. We've had $3 gold pieces and all these other things that aren't used today. You know, most of the dimensions we have are long gone. Have you paid attention to the series of replica or tribute pieces that have been licensed by this? You mentioned the, the, the half unions, the $50 gold uh, pieces in the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian has licensed several designs into um, to be made as medals in, in the last 10, 15 years. Is that something that is uh, worth acknowledging, worth pursuing? What are your thoughts on those? I don't know if you ever go to eBay, but there's a lot of what I call fake patterns on, online now. I don't, I don't like copying things as, as much as possible. I don't, I don't, I don't even like the, the mint redoing the like we, we created the was it the 1909 double eagle, you know, the, the, the St. Gordon's and produced the, the bullion pieces that are double thickness. Oh, okay. To go back to a pattern like that was. I don't, I don't like that. That's that's nice to do. I'd like, I'd like to see originality. I thought it was nice to get Susan B. Anthony, you know, a, a coin ballot, but Franco Sparrow's Liberty was much nicer. <laughs> that, oh. would have been, that, would have made a, that would have made a nice coin in 1979. That would have been something worth having. Oh, absolutely. And uh, there have been a few modern uh, iterations of that. Uh, Ken Potter had uh, pieces made a few years ago in silver uh, and maybe other metals. And somebody seeing that automatically, you, you can recognize the artistry and the beauty of that. To me, again, that, that speaks to the, what might've been that feeling that patterns yeah. ev evoke to me anyway. I don't like people taking pattern designs and copying them for other countries or for other things or not, not for that. I don't like what China, you know, this fakes coming out of China or for everything, whether it's, whether it's patterns, mint errors, whatever the case may be. I'm not, it's not, it's not a good thing. Just makes collecting harder and harder. Okay. So it's, that, to, that to me is not a positive. For collectors who are interested in in starting to approach patterns or who may have already acquired some literature, you're a founding member of the Society of U.S. Pattern Collectors. Are there any other organizations that specialize in patterns, in U.S. patterns? And how might somebody get more involved and be able to interact with other pattern collectors from whom they might be able to learn a little bit more, dive a little bit deeper into a pattern that they might be interested in. There was actually a group of pattern collectors in the '60s that used that used that name. We actually used that more for when we put up the website, the U.S. Patterns like our website. But that society actually they had, they had, they had they, every week or couple or every month or so they would produce a, a newsletter with auction prices and stuff. And some of the collectors of, you know, from that time, like Rudy Seek and all those people were in there. It was, it was, I think it was run by somebody in Oregon. Actually, I forget the dealer's name, but th that, that's where that came from. I said the pattern website really came about because the last jet book prior to Whitman taking over the 10th, you know, like when you go to the 7th edition, between the 7th and 8th, there's a, there a huge time gap of some tw of some 20 years before a new pattern book was created. And that's really where the pattern site came. We used to have a membership listing up there that would tell, you know, give you a listing of people with their email addresses so you could talk to people and learn stuff. It, it's harder today, you know, especially in this environment where people are more web-based, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, you don't go to coin. People don't go to coin shows as much now. Of course, now nobody's going to a coin show with the, with the coronavirus. But it's much more difficult today. I, I do admit that. You should get a book. I, I tell I tell buy a seventh edition Jet book, even if you have to find it from an old bookseller. You know, uh, and and get the current edition of the Jet book. Those are the easiest ones to get. If you can get and I try to get the Pollock book, pattern book. Those are the, the main ones that have, because they have they have a list of just about everything in them. 
and of course, use the website. The website, you know, will, will, will guide you. Basically, all online has pictures of everything, so at least you can see what you're buying. It may, it may not have as much of the history of it, of course, but at least it'll show you the coins, what they are, what metals they come in, how rare they are. Most of the most of the items that are that are, you know that are rarity seven or, or rarer, there, there are pedigrees for the coins. You know, which is pretty good. You know, that, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot to maintain too. So we try to we try to limit that as much as we can to the important ones. But generally speaking, all the important pedigrees for all those important ones, like the Amazonians, the schoolgirls, the, the wash ladies are too common, so they're not up there. But most of the other ones, you know, are are up there. And anything that's this one, this you know, like two or three known, for example, I often have pictures of, of all the examples there too. You do get to learn a lot if you can visit places. The you know, the ANA has what's left of the higher best collection, you know, available in Colorado to look at. He collected a phenomenal amount of like 500 patterns in a very short time, but he bought them at the right time <laughs> when, they were, when they were affordable. Yeah. Today, you know, t- t- you know, the Smithsonian has them, but again, not, you know, has a, has a fantastic collection. The American Numismatic Society also does, and they're online. Pa- some of the patterns, in fact, the ANS patterns, you can a- you can actually see them on my website. I have a link to the museum collections. The Connecticut State Library has, has a magnificent collection that was built that was there from that when Mitchelson gave the collections then in 1911. So even got some rare gold patterns. The Byron Reed collection in, in in Omaha and the Durham Museum has you know has several hundred that's been there since 1891. So you have you have there are there are museums that have nice stuff there. Cool. You know, if you can get to, if you can get to get you know the chance to ever go there and, and sit down with the curator and look at them, most of the things aren't on display anymore, unfortunately. Once life gets back to uh, uh, you know some balance and equilibrium and, and a normalcy, that can offer interested folks opportunities to explore numismatically. Until then, the website, the book, online uh, exhibits at museum websites will have to suffice. I think I can uh, comfortably speak for Chris and say thank you so much yes. for working this into your schedule. And we appreciate it and um, hope for all the best to you. Good luck. That was our interview with Saul Teichman, uh, exploring the fascinating realm of U.S. pattern coins. We want to thank you and remind you, subscribe to the Coin World podcast. Do sign up for the 30-day free trial of Coin World Digital Edition. That's coinworld.com slash 30-day trial. The letters 3030. Uh, not spelling out 30, but coinworld.com slash 30 day trial. Uh, you can listen to the podcast. You can read Coinworld Digital Edition. Work you can on seek a- out articles that Jeff and I wrote if you want to, uh, if yes. you want to see how we sound in print. Organize your collection. That's what I'm doing in in some of this downtime here in the podcast studio where I am. I have uh, a bunch of my collection, you know, laid out, trying to get it better organized. We hope you're uh, using this time to stay connected with family and friends and the hobby you love and we love. Please continue to stay safe and stay healthy. And if the Coin World podcast has been helping you to occupy your your, uh, downtime, you know, thank you so much for continuing to listen. And as Jeff said, please remember to subscribe and check out that free trial. On that note, until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Hey everyone, it's Brian again, reminding you to check out our free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's digital edition. The offer expires on May 31st, 2020, so head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial or follow the link in the show notes today.